Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 64, Golgotha Hill. Last time, we discussed the Battle of Flair Corselet, in which the British Army made history by deploying tanks for the very first time. Although tanks did not have a promising debut, the infantry made great strides, capturing 3,000 meters of trenches and delivering a substantial blow to Germany's forces on the Somme. Haig was looking to close out the season on a high note, and Flair Corselet was an impressive display of how far the BEF had come since July 1st. Seeing as this marks our 40th episode covering the events of 1916, I decided now would be a good time to start bringing things to a close. We began 1916 way back in episode 31, The New Way, and in that time, we've covered more material than I ever thought possible. To mark this occasion, I wanted to bring things full circle, and return to where it all began, at the city of Verdun. By the time Anglo-French forces launched their offensive on the Somme, the Battle of Verdun had undergone substantial changes. The intensity of the summer battles had abated. France had weathered the latest crisis, but neither side had gained a strategic advantage. On the left bank, the Germans occupied the slopes of Mordholm and Hill 364. On the right bank, the June offensive pushed the Germans to the crest of Fleury Ridge, leaving a salient just 7 kilometers short of the citadel. After capturing Fleury, the Germans doubled down their offensive. A second attack against Fort Souville failed to make inroads. Philippe Pétain and Robert Nevel responded with a series of counterstrokes aimed at pushing the Germans off the ridge. French forces counterattacked eight times over ten days. Nevel's artillery glowed red hot, as some guns fired 900 to 1,000 rounds in a single day of combat. When the advance ground to a halt at the base of Fort Souville, German divisions were reporting losses of over 50%. The last German offensive on the Meuse lasted 17 days, and moved the line just 400 meters. Having survived the gauntlet, Philippe Pétain could breathe a sigh of relief. With the Somme offensive now underway, Pétain hoped a period of calm would give his forces time to rest and recuperate. It would take some weeks before the Somme had any discernible effects on Verdun. As the center of the fighting shifted west, the armies on the Meuse maintained an active front. Neither wanted to give the impression of slacking off, but broad front attacks were dropped in favor of limited operations against narrow positions. These raids had little impact on the overall balance, except to reinforce Verdun's reputation as one of the most sinister places on the western front. Artillery dominated the battlefield, and for the men in the firing line, Verdun remained a place of unspeakable misery. The shell-swept lunar landscape was no place for human flesh. Forced to live a troglodytic existence, men sheltered underground, crushed into forts and bunkers like sardines. More often than not, these spaces were shared between the living and dead. The nature of Verdun produced an environment where the individual soldier was helpless before the power of the guns, which did not discriminate between hero and coward. This prompted one French soldier to ask, quote, Have we arrived alive in the land of the dead? No, it is simply the hell of Verdun. End quote. 
Although Philippe Pétain was no longer in charge of Second Army, he kept a close eye on things from his new digs as head of Army Group Centre. Pétain found the transition difficult. He was concerned that his replacement at Second Army, Robert Nevel, would push his bend to the breaking point. Pétain's suspicions were confirmed on May the 22nd, when an ill-fitted attempt to recapture Fort Douaumont resulted in an entire division being slaughtered on the ramparts. This had been the work of Nevel's number two man, Colonel Charles Magin. Charles Magin had a reputation of being the most aggressive leader in the French army, earning him the nickname the Eater of Men. Pétain was saddened by the loss of life, writing, quote, My heart bled when I saw our young 21-year-old men going under fire at Verdun, knowing, as I did, that with the impressionability of their age, they would quickly lose the enthusiasm aroused by their first battle, and sink into the apathy of suffering. End quote. Pétain harangued Nevel for mishandling the operation, but careful study of the after-action reports revealed that ineffective artillery preparation had a role in the farce. Over 900,000 kilograms of shell were dropped on Fort Douaumont, yet the German defenses remained intact. Pétain recommended a heavier concentration of firepower for the next attempt. Throughout August and September, Nevel and Mangin were kept on a short leash. The French maintained an active front, but no major operations took place. In the interim, Pétain was happy to bide his time, and let the Somme drain as much of the enemy's resources as possible. Meanwhile, back in Paris, the gossip surrounding the future of Joseph Joffre had intensified, gripping the capital in an atmosphere of intrigue. Criticized for ignoring the warning signs at Verdun, and now the slow progress of British forces on the Somme, Joffre could feel the walls closing in. The Chamber of Deputies meeting of June the 23rd, which we discussed in episode 47, had been a stinging indictment of his leadership. Although Joff had dodged the axe, his critics were relentless in their pursuit to see him fall from grace. André Maginot, one of Joff's most vocal critics, wrote of him, quote, The commander lives day by day. He yields the initiative to his adversary instead of imposing his will on him. End quote. After two years of costly setbacks, public morale had taken a dip by the autumn of 1916. Joff still had his supporters, but few could deny his ore from the Marne had worn thin. The government, however, felt compelled to stand by their man. They had given Joff a vote of confidence at the end of 1915, and in doing so, had chained themselves to his fate. If Joff was removed, they would likely cause a collapse of government, throwing France into chaos and thus fulfilling one of Falkenhayn's objectives. For now, Premier Briand and President Poincaré gave their support. This was shown when Joff's request to expand the air war was approved by the ministry, allowing French airplanes to bomb targets of opportunity inside Germany. On the day Romania declared war on Austria-Hungary, Joff chaired a meeting with Anglo-French political and military leaders to discuss their options for the coming winter and spring. In an effort to save his skin, and to impress his new allies in Bucharest, Joff wanted to see simultaneous offensives on the Somme and at Verdun. Haig, who was in attendance, agreed in principle, but he warned Joff that his forces would not be ready until September 15th, leading to the Battle of Flair Corselet, which we discussed last episode. It was a different story at Verdun, 
where the Germans possessed the firepower and the real estate. Cracking the formidable defense lines would require a tremendous amount of firepower. Pétain judged it too early to undertake any serious offensives. Surprisingly, this was seconded by Nevelle, who appealed for fresh troops to replace the exhausted ones left over from the June crisis. A thaw in negotiations occurred on August the 29th, when news of Falkenhayn's resignation made its rounds. Although Falkenhayn's enthusiasm for the battle had been suspect for some time, it seemed unlikely that whoever succeeded him would put stock in continuing the operation. France cut her wish eight days later, when Hindenburg permanently suspended the German offensive. The battles there exhausted our forces like an open wound, Hindenburg later wrote. German infantry were notified that their lines were to be regarded as permanent. For the men at the front, news of the cancellation made little difference. No trumpets sounded, and none of the men were ordered off the line. It wasn't as simple as packing up and leaving. Although some men were relieved to hear they would not be expected to participate in costly attacks, the Germans now faced a different sort of reality. By September, German losses on both banks numbered 281,333 men. From their positions on Fleury Ridge, taken in June, it was only 4.5 kilometers to Fort Douaumont, taken in February. Eight months of carnage for 4,500 meters of blasted earth. You did not have to be an ethics major to see the dilemma. Would the cost of holding territory be equal to that of gaining it? It was no secret the French would seek revanche, and that Fort Douaumont was their target. In his study of the battle, Malcolm Brown compares Douaumont to Ahab's white whale, a symbol of obsession and hubris which haunted French authorities since it fell without a fight back on February the 25th. Douaumont was the fulcrum which transformed Verdun into a charnel house, which devoured men and material like some primordial beast. The Germans knew the French would not give up until Douaumont was theirs once again. Since February, Douaumont served as a forward command center for German forces on the East Bank. Although it was built to protect French troops, it shielded its foreign garrison all the same. Still, Douaumont had seen better days, its carapace having been eaten away from round-the-clock shelling. Yet, in a landscape of flayed earth and disinterned dead, Douaumont was a dependable oasis. Despite its corridor smelling of a mix of carbolic acid, damp mortar, and charred wood, according to a German officer, it was one of the safest places on the battlefield. The Germans took to calling it Old Uncle Douaumont, and they entered the fort quicker than they left. The decision to retake the fort was hatched at the August 27th meeting. Joffre ordered an offensive on the east bank to drive the enemy from beyond Douaumont. Pétain objected to the proposed September start date, arguing for an October attack instead. Joff agreed. Five days later, Pétain submitted a draft which called for six divisions to attack on a five-kilometer front between Fort Douaumont and Fort Vaux. Joff authorized the plan, and supplied two additional divisions. At Barley-Duke, Pétain sat down with Nevelle and began to iron out the details. By September, Nevelle had noticed a shift in German tactical deployment. 
fewer of their aircraft were being spotted, and their artillery concentration had narrowed significantly. These were encouraging signs, which hinted the Germans were suffering under the Allied attrition. It also suggested that the French had finally achieved fire superiority, something Pétain had hoped for since the opening days of the battle. To recapture Douaumont, Pétain assembled an impressive arsenal of heavy guns, including 270s, 280s, and 370s. 15,000 tons of shell arrived via the Sacred Way, which was dispersed to 650 guns. Additionally, Pétain also secured the services of two colossal 400mm railway guns. These steel monstrosities were the most powerful weapons yet deployed by the French army. Each gun weighed 270 tons, and fired a one-ton projectile which rose to a height of 8,000 meters, before plummeting to the earth at the speed of a runaway freight train. These guns had the single purpose of penetrating Duomont's armor, which had proven impervious to everything thrown its way. Robert Nevel also planned to make his mark on the battle. With Charles Magin overseeing its execution, Nevel was in charge of the detailed planning. It was his job to determine how to put Peyton's guns to good use. As mentioned in episode 45, Dead Man's Hill, Robert Nevel was a bit of a golden boy. At 58 years of age, he was young for an army commander, having been a regimental colonel the previous year. On top of being an aggressive thruster, which endeared him to Joffre, Nevel was a skilled artillerist having brought with him a novel and more mobile gunnery technique, the creeping barrage. Now I should point out, no individual or army can claim credit for inventing the creeping barrage. It had been in use for some time by a number of armies prior to 1914, notably the Bulgarians in the First Balkan War. The difference here is that Nevel planned to use the creeping barrage on a scale never before attempted. Put simply, the creeping barrage was a complex and very dangerous form of gunnery. During the bombardment, the artillery would drop a curtain of steel in front of the advancing troops. The barrage would then jump forward at 50 to 100 meter intervals, pummeling the enemy trenches as the infantry advanced behind. An effective creep demanded an incredible expenditure of shell, but it also required tremendous coordination between the batteries and infantry. Nevel had his engineers buried 9 kilometers of telephone wire to ensure contact was maintained. The slightest miscue could spell disaster. If the infantry moved too quickly, they risked being caught by their own guns. Too slow, and they would be exposed in the open without support. To prepare them for this new technique, the infantry underwent a vigorous training regime at Bar-le-Duc. Nevel's men ran a number of mock battles on scale models. Every detail of the terrain had been meticulously reconstructed, including scaled models of Duomond and Vaux. Maneuvers were carried out on successive scales, first with sections, then platoons and companies, followed by battalions and brigades. The creeping barrage was represented by men carrying flags, who moved forward at timed intervals. The troops methodically rehearsed the operation, envisaged every possible difficulty, and planned how to overcome them. During the first half of October, section leaders were taken to Verdun where they visited their starting positions and got a feel for life at the front. 
While some leaders were veterans of the Western Front, fighting at Verdun was a different experience. Once in the hills, you were on your own, a world of terrifying loneliness and isolation. Ground shifted, and landmarks disappeared. Trenches that were there on Monday were gone by Tuesday. Such was the nature of a battlefield where artillery held sovereign. To recapture Duomont, Peyton and Nevel planned to attack with two successive waves. Each wave would consist of three divisions. Charles Mangin would oversee the battle from his post in Fort Souville. In the first wave, Nevel deployed the 38th Division against Duomont. In the center, the 138th would attack between Duomont and Vaux, while the 74th Division would strike against Fort Vaux on the extreme right. The first wave would then be followed by the second wave, consisting of 34th, 54th, and 9th Divisions left to right. Finally, 10th and 5th Divisions would advance behind the second wave and mop up any remaining resistance. For four days, French guns blanketed the front. Between October 20th and 24th, 855,264 rounds were fired in the Duomont sector. For the Germans, the opening bombardment capped off a miserable week, made worse by the terrible stretch of weather preceding it. Eight days of torrential downpour soaked the battlefield. The newly dug positions collapsed, and bunkers sank into the mud. Morale suffered. No food reached the Germans for six days, and reports of frostbite, dysentery, and self-inflicted wounds spiked considerably. During one of the flash floods, a stream of corpses washed down from the heights into French trenches, a macabre reminder that not even the dead were free from Verdun's horrors. Meanwhile, Fort Duomond braced for another round of terrible shelling. Every 10 to 15 minutes, the fort was rocked by the impact of a 400mm shell. The massive one-ton projectile sent a sickening tremor through the fort. The corridors bent and creaked. Masonry fell from the ceiling. One shell destroyed an observation turret, crushing its officer under tons of concrete. The fort's commandant, Major Rosenthal, had a decision to make. Defend to the last man, or pull back to safer positions. After a quick survey, Rosenthal acknowledged that staying in the fort was pointless. Any second thoughts of remaining were violently subdued by the arrival of yet another 400mm shell, which crashed through the roof. The shell burrowed deep into the underbelly of the fort, and came to a rest near a small ammunition dump. Duomond was rocked by a tremendous explosion. In the blink of an eye, 60 men were incinerated, and black, acrid smoke filled the corridors. Rosenthal ordered his men to drop what they were doing and get the hell out. But as Alistair Horn points out in his classic study, The Price of Glory, not every man got the message. Two soldiers manning the gallery in the northwest corner of the fort had not been informed of the order. In Horn's own words, quote, Like good German soldiers, they stayed at it, alone and forgotten. End quote. On the morning of October 24th, a thick autumn mist covered the Meuse Hills. French observers were unable to locate Duomond. For a fleeting moment, it looked as though the attack would be postponed. The Germans certainly expected it to be, 
no army in their right mind would attack under such poor conditions. But this was Verdun, the graveyard of convention. At 11.40 in the morning, the clouds broke, and Duamon's great dome came into view. Bugles sounded, and the attack went in. The bombardment had done its job. Twelve minutes passed before the German field guns opened fire, and their counter-bombardment was pathetically ineffective. Only 90 of the 158 German batteries on the east bank remained, allowing the French infantry to search forward. The absence of German counterfire prompted one French officer to remark, quote, If only we had been thus provided at the beginning of the war, we should not now be fighting in France. End quote. The counterpush was underway, and the speed with which the French advanced was uncanny. Within minutes, Ouvrage de Thiamond was retaken, soon followed by the trench of the bayonet. A French sergeant counted 200 prisoners within 20 minutes of the attack, including one German officer who was captured during his morning constitution. The unit, which had the glory of securing Fort Duamond, was the 38th Infantry Division. The 38th Infantry Division was primarily composed of colonial troops from Africa, namely Morocco, Senegal, and Somalia. These were formidable men, big and tough, who earned a notorious, if unwarranted, reputation for their handling of prisoners. Rumors of African troops decapitating POWs and keeping things like teeth, ears, and toes as personal trophies circulated widely. While there are reports of such behavior, it would be wrong to apply one or two witness testimonies to a group of thousands because whether it happened or not is beside the point. What is important was the very real fear the Germans had of these men. When it was revealed that African troops were in the charge, many centuries fled their posts. They did not want to stick around to find out if the rumors were true. Although the French had spent weeks rehearsing the attack, not everything went according to plan. German defenses in Fort Vaux reaped terrible losses on the battalions of 74th Division, resulting in the right flank sagging behind the main advance. The center formations continued to push. By 12.15pm, battalions from 38th Division had occupied their old trenches outside Douaumont, but were prevented from getting closer by concealed mortars and machine guns. The most important unit that day was the Colonial Infantry Regiment from Morocco. This unit had advanced from their starting positions between Theomond and Fleury. The regimental commander, Major Nikolai, led his men into the fog. After a few moments of chaotic fighting, Nikolai lost his bearings. Fort Duamond was nowhere to be seen, and the regiment was veering well left of their objectives. The Moroccans were the sole unit equipped for the kind of close fighting that might be expected once Duamond was breached. Knowing the capture of the fort depended on his unit, Nikolai took a gamble. Leading his men forward 100 meters every few minutes, Nikolai caught a break when the fog lifted, revealing the shoulder of Duamon's shattered carapace. Nikolai ordered his men forward, where they charged the ramparts and forced their way inside. Although Rosenthal had his men evacuate, a handful of defenders remained behind. Just as the main garrison departed from the north, a small party of engineers, commanded by Captain Prolius of the German artillery, 
entered from the east tunnel. Captain Proleus was surprised to discover the fort abandoned, and with fires raging inside, his engineer set about extinguishing the flames. Once secure, Proleus dispatched a runner, and was awaiting word when the French struck. Proleus's crew managed to check the French for over an hour, but were eventually forced to withdraw deeper into the fort. By one o'clock that afternoon, the tricolor flag was hoisted above the fort. Duomond was French again. That evening, Proleus and his crew of four officers and 24 exhausted men were discovered hiding in the cellar. The irony was not lost on anyone. Duomond had been captured virtually empty on February the 25th, and almost to the day, eight months later, it was recaptured in much the same way, prompting one French officer to comment, quote, A singular fate for a fort which during eight months had been the key to a field of battle watered with the blood of hundreds of thousands of men. End quote. This was not an irony to be laughed at or celebrated, yet the French officer's comment puts things into perspective. The French took back in one afternoon what the Germans had fought over for four months. Although Fort Vaux would not be taken for another week, the German gains from Souville to Douaumont were wiped out. The ruins of Fleury were retaken, as were the ouvrages Freud de Terre and Theomont. It was the largest single gain from either army throughout the battle, and it was accomplished without a single gun withdrawn or used from the Somme. However, Naval and Mangin were eager to inflict more damage. A second attack on November 2nd succeeded in recapturing Fort Vaux. Vaux's deliverance was marked by celebrations throughout the country. Pétain was quick to point out it took the Germans five days to capture Vaux, while the French had recaptured Douaumont and Vaux in just over a week. It seemed the Germans did not have a major Renault waiting in the wings. In a message to Mangin's troops, Nevel acknowledged the great achievement. Quote, In four hours, in a magnificent assault, you seized from a powerful enemy in a single blow, the terrain northeast of Verdun, which bristled with obstacles and fortresses, and which had torn you to shreds for eight months, and demanded desperate efforts and considerable sacrifices. You have added a new and brilliant glory to that which already covers the flags of the army of Verdun. In the name of that army, I thank you. End quote. Duomont and Vaux were French once again but the Battle of Verdun would drag on until December. The final battle came on December 15th, when Mejan launched a three-day campaign across a nine-kilometer front. This would push the lines two kilometers beyond Douaumont, capturing 115 guns and 11,000 prisoners. Although the Germans still held gains on the flanks, the front lines at the center were back to their original positions. With that, the Battle of Verdun was over. Convention dictates that the Battle of Verdun began on February the 21st and ended on December 18th, but these are arbitrary numbers. Fighting had first come to this area in 1914, and it would continue all the way through to 1918. Certainly, an argument can be made that the story of the 1916 battle represents the apex of a much larger tale one dating back to the Franco-Prussian War. 
While fascinating, such views are beyond the scope of this podcast. The Battle of Verdun ended on December 18, 1916, nine months, three weeks, and six days after it began on that dark February morning. It was the longest battle of the First World War, and I want to close our chapter on the Great Battle with a few additional remarks. The Battle of Verdun was a crucible in which French and German armies tested new weapons and techniques. Steel helmets, flamethrowers, phosgene gas, and early stormtrooper tactics were deployed in order to break the opponent's defenses. Despite all the new horrors it unleashed, it was artillery and firepower which decided its outcome. Thus, Verdun is often seen as a microcosm of the First World War. A complete war inside the Great War, as one famous historian once put it. The statistics surrounding the battle are staggering. This next bit of information comes from John Terrain's White Heat, a book devoted to army operations of the First World War. This passage is lifted straight from Terrain's study. Quote, For their initial attack, the Germans brought up 2,500,000 shells, using for the purpose some 1,300 trains. By June, the artillery on both sides had grown to about 2,000 guns, and it was calculated that in just over four months of battle, 24 million shells had been pumped into the stretch of dedicated ground. End quote. Verdun was a battle won or lost by logistics. According to Pétain, German forces expended a daily average of 150,000 shells for both banks. Again, that's 150,000 shells daily, 90,000 for the right and 60,000 for the left bank. And again, those are daily German numbers only. Add in Pétain's own numbers for French expenditures, which totaled 20,100,000 shells, you're looking at an average of 67,400 shells every day, each day 298 times. Verdun's statistics boggle the mind. One of the more light-hearted numbers counts 30,000 loaves of bread baked daily in the citadel, which were handed to the men en route from the sacred way. The unanswerable question remains, was it worth it? The October battles had cost the French dearly, 47,000 men in just over a week. Of the 800 men from Major Nikolai's Moroccan regiment, a little over 100 returned from Douaumont. Human costs for the battle are chilling. Historians disagree on the actual numbers, but it's safe to say Verdun consumed more than a quarter of a million lives, 400,000 French to 355,000 Germans, the bulk of which having never seen their opponent in the flesh. Before the battle had ended, the city of Verdun was already legendary. On September 13th, officials from England, Russia, Italy, and Belgium visited the martyred city to acknowledge the great sacrifice. Titles were bestowed, and municipal leaders spoke of France's defiance against the Germanic invaders. All the while, the rolling thunder of the guns reverberated through the hills, as more men headed for the grinder. Trying to put Verdun into perspective is controversial business. The concept and conduct of the battle attracts few approving nods from military historians. Summing up the campaign, Peter Simpkins has written, quote, The French army had come through the major crises in February and June, 
and had saved were done. But nobody had gained any strategic advantage from the bloodletting. Certainly not the Germans. Falkenhayn's fatal irresolution and failure to match the means to the end had merely resulted in the German army being bled white along with the French. Neither side ever fully recovered from the hell of Verdun before the end of the war. End quote. I believe that Simpkins is right on the money here, and as we head into 1917, the effects of Verdun would be widely felt. Seen through the French perspective, the Battle of Verdun was a tragic victory, but it was a victory nonetheless. An argument can be made that the French should have allowed the Germans to take the city in February, thus avoiding the nine-month slaughter. Such a decision, I feel, would have caused further damage in the long term. Abandoning Verdun would have been an undeniable admission of Joffre's hubris. His offensives in 1915 were costly failures, and by January 1916, French losses on the Western Front had already topped one million men with nothing to show for it. Given this context, how could France respond any different? Nightmares of 1870 were fresh in the minds of her officers and politicians, and they understood Verdun was no random target. The Germans had chosen it due to its symbolism. Having been the last city to fall in 1870, there were connotations attached to it. It had little value as a military target, but an attack there was an assault on French history and prestige. Cutting Verdun loose after the disappointments of 1915 would have been disastrous, but of course we can only speculate on what those consequences could have been. Germany had thrown down the sword, and France had little choice but to respond in kind. Unfortunately, the decision to defend Verdun resulted in 300 days of mechanical carnage, as both armies fell into the attritional trap. A French journalist at the time reported, quote, The battle proceeded by fragmentation, by the dispersion in time and space of mediocre attacks. End quote. Firepower kept the armies in check. Offensives and counteroffensives were smashed to a pulp by the awesome killing power of industrial weaponry. France and Germany were locked in a standoff, prompting one critic to comment that the battle would only end when one side had no more men to be massacred. By December, 78% of the regiments in the French army had served at Verdun. The Germans posted some 40 divisions, many of which stayed in the firing line for the whole nine months. Being posted to Verdun became a rite of passage for many soldiers. Being a man of Verdun set you apart from the rest of your comrades. The experience marked you, prompting a French soldier to comment, He who has not seen Verdun has not seen war. The terror of the Meuse was not easily forgotten, and the sights and sounds of the great Mincer had a profound influence on the next generation of military leaders. André Maginot and Charles de Gaulle both spent time in the Meuse grinder and lived to tell the tale. De Gaulle was so affected by the experience, he refused to allow German representatives at the 50th commemorations in 1966. On the other side of the line, Friedrich Paulus, a lieutenant in 1916, would command the German 6th Army in the Second World War's nearest equivalent to Verdun, the Battle of Stalingrad. Those who survived the Meuse were haunted by its memory, 
and perhaps no account illustrates this point better, than the story of Karl Heinrich von Stenagel, the military governor of German-occupied France. Implicated in the plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944, Stenagel faced certain death upon his return to Germany. Wanting to see the Meuse one last time, he had his driver detour by way of Verdun, where he once served as a company commander during the vicious battles from Mordholm. Stenagel had no intention of returning. After some distance, he had his driver stop along the riverbank. Stenagel got out, presented a pistol, and shot himself in the head. Except it didn't work. The bullet destroyed both his eyes, leaving him a whimpering mess of shattered teeth and tissue. Blinded and helpless, he was dragged before the Nazi tribunal and sentenced to death. He was strangled in the courtyard of a Berlin prison the next day. The sinister battlefield at Verdun continued to claim victims well after the guns had stopped. Next week, we'll continue our closeout of 1916 by swinging back to the Somme. Like Verdun, Haig's offensive was coming to an end. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This week, I would like to thank our most recent donors, Jack Kriegbaum, Mark Whedon, and James Riopelli. Thank you all very much for your kind contributions. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 64 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly. <laughs>